0: Hello beautiful people, welcome to Beyond the Mat. I'm your host, J. Cole Yoga, or Dr. J, or Jesus Crust, or Intuit the Discordian. Depending on what mood I am in, I am all kinds of crazy people up inside here. Okay, so this all started as a video channel on YouTube where I would talk about certain themes and aspects of issues and items that I'm interested in, in life, in all the things I do when I am not on a yoga mat. Uh, It was my younger brother, actually, who came up with the name a couple years ago after I had returned from yoga school. And one day he says to me, he said, Hey man, you know what would be a cool name for your next podcast? beyond the yoga mat and like I totally dug it so I wrote it down in my phone where it sat for about six months before I ended up starting the YouTube channel and he totally forgot that he had even like given me that idea and uh, it's nothing special the YouTube channel I mean it's just me talking to the camera I'm wearing wacky outfits there's cool backgrounds sometimes I'm in the forest sometimes I'm like by a lake or a river or something like that they're like 10 to 20 minutes long, so it didn't get too deep into things, like not as deep as I had wanted to go. Um, I started podcasting back in 2011 after hearing a few episodes of the Joe Rogan podcast. And I thought like, wow, like I need to do something like this. And I started by interviewing all my artist friends, which were mainly musicians, as I had previously worked in the music industry for a good 15 years leading up to that point. And uh, anyways, the YouTube show Beyond the Mat, I just got to say this, this is way easier. Because on the YouTube show, I was trying to memorize these giant swaths of information that I had written, and then regurgitated on the screen to everyone out there. And this this is a much easier i have my show notes i can look at i can write a little paragraph to read here and there uh, i have all the website links open on my screen for references uh, notes about my guests and whatever things they want to touch down on during the show so this should flow a little bit more smoothly this time around and i won't have to do is like i would i was doing like five or six takes of the YouTube video to try and like get it perfect without screwing up. Cause I don't like to like clip my videos and cut out the uhs and ums and those down, those down times. I mean, that's just kind of like, it's kind of weird, it's kind of glitchy to watch. It's that like low attention span kind of thing that, that the internet is doing to people. And I don't really like that. I just like to get it all out, get it all out smoothly and do it right the first time or the fifth or sixth or 10th time. So this will be my fourth audio, podcasts. Sadly, the first three have all been deleted after server crashes and companies going out of business. Although I did get a few hundred episodes under my belt between the three of them. And so, you know, I feel like I know what I'm doing now. And I re- I realize as I say that, that by thinking I know means I really don't know, you know. Uh, I do have copies of The J. Cole Show, that I will soon upload to YouTube, just so they don't get lost. Uh, Because there are no guests for this first episode, I thought I would take this time to tell a few little secrets about myself. Like, who is Jason Cole anyways? Like, what gives me the right to get on here and talk all this shit? Well, while I was in a rap group for 10 years, rapping under the stage name of Intuit, like Intuition, do not confuse me with the other rapper named J. Cole, which I would like to state, the J in his name stands for Justin. So he's technically not even a real J, but I ain't even hating on anyone, you know? He's got some good tunes, it's all love, baby. It's all love, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, back to me, back to me, reign it in, reign it in there. I guess we'll, uh, we'll start at the beginning. So I was born March 20th in 1979 in Halifax, Nova Scotia to Gary and Wendy. So yeah, a Pisces and right on the cusp, if you believe in that kind of stuff. And and I do, I didn't used to. And then someone gave me this book that was literally a book about Pisces and it just blew my mind. It opened me up to all kinds of this astrology shit, which before I was like, it's fucking bullshit. But I mean, the astrology I was reading was like the newspaper astrology, like, you will have good fortune today. Your lucky number is five. You know, shit like that. It's like, get the hell out of here. Um, but when you get really into the depths of the astrology, it's, it's insane. It's mind blowing. It's boggling. It's baffling. And so uh, as a Pisces on the cusp, uh, there's always been this duality about me. And if you've ever seen the Pisces logo, the image, it's always two fish sort of swimming away from each other, like pulling and tugging in this sort of spiral pattern around and around in a constant battle with each other. But, and this is the duality of me, like I see it that way, but even that battle, if you take a step back with the right kind of eyes, it starts to look like a beautiful dance between these two fish. I mean, that's that's me right there, like uh, (laughs) pulling and tugging, but also is a beautiful dance. Uh, So, yeah, back to uh, my life. So my dad was building us our own house in the neighboring province of Nova Scotia uh, called New Brunswick on land that his uncle had sold him. But like, I mean, a good chunk of land. But the thing is, his uncle clear-cut all the forest. There was nothing but stumps left anywhere. That was before I was born. So right now, that forest has regrown. And it's like over 40 years of growth now. It's looking pretty good. Uh, Anyways, we were quite poor back then. The house probably had some shoddy insulation, or maybe I played outside in the snow for too long, or maybe I had the wrong clothing on in the winter, but at three years old, I developed pneumonia, and that pneumonia put me in the hospital, which spread into my other lung, creating double pneumonia, which then left me with a severe case of asthma, which I grew up my entire life identifying with identifying as as an asthma sufferer. Um, It was right around this same time that my younger brother was born. And uh, I remember my dad reading books and learning breathing techniques for my asthma and maybe just for his own self-knowledge and trying to teach me these like breathing exercises. And like I had a vaporizer machine. It's like this big tub kind of thing that sat on the floor and you would put water in it and like vicks cough syrup or, or something and it would vaporize the water so basically it would make the water into steam and it would blow but it wasn't like a hot steam it was like a cool mist that would come out and, and i would kind of put that next to the bed and blast that shit in my face as i laid there there were back rubs that you could do and kind of like lay on your chest lay on your stomach and kind of hang like half of your chest off the bed. And that would like, and you'd be able to try and like expel some of the phlegm. And I mean, these were like crazy moments in life, like I'd be having a raging attack. And during a raging attack, none of these techniques would work. And so we would need to rush to a hospital. But because we lived so far out in the forest, it was like a 45-minute or an hour drive to the hospital. And we needed to go across a river on a wooden ferry raft. And my parents just prayed that the ferry raft operator was working at night. I mean, this would be like 3 or 4 in the morning in most cases. And if the guy wasn't there, we would have been screwed. Because we would have had to like drive an extra like hour out of the way. And I possibly could have died from these asthma attacks. But uh, sometimes... Uh, sometimes we would be driving and like the calming hum and vibration of the vehicle would calm me down. It would make me fall asleep and then my lungs would relax and I could breathe again like just minutes before arriving at the hospital too. So we would always go in the hospital though and they would still have a look at me. Uh, Then this one time during an attack, I remember this like it was yesterday, the doctors in the emergency got me to breathe some kind of medicine from a little blue canister. And the asthma attack just went away. And that's because the asthma inhaler had just been invented and they were testing that shit out on me. That shit was life-changing. So what the inhaler does is it blasts your lungs with a shot of steroids that force your bronchial tubes wide open, allowing air to enter again until the swelling and the inflammation inflammation dies down on its own and i really don't like taking inhalers today because they give me a headache and i get all speedy feeling like having had too many coffees in a day and i'm all jittery and awake and as if uh if i take it at night like i can't sleep for another few hours so it's like really uncomfortable especially if you got to work or do something the next day you don't want to be like all awake just kind of like sitting there with nothing to do um so just a side note here um Shortly after this, my parents got divorced. My brother and I moved away to live with my mom, and my dad would take us on the weekends. But we'll talk more about that later. This is just like in the timeline when it happened, so I wanted to throw that in there. But uh, yeah, so back in the day, even with the inhaler's help, I still could not run to save my life. Like, I would run, I would get maybe like uh. 50 feet and that was it I would just break down and have an asthma attack like I couldn't run and play with the other kids so there were no sports there was no active life at all aside from easy things like riding a bike or a skateboard or just kind of like walking around in the yard climbing trees and shit like that and so I stayed inside a lot and like I said we were quite poor back then so we didn't really have a lot of shit to do Uh, my grandmother worked at a stationary department at an Air Force base in Nova Scotia. And she would smuggle giant rolls of paper, pens, glue stick, pencil crayons, markers, all kinds of cool stuff for kids to use. And she would ship these giant boxes of art supplies to my dad's house in New Brunswick. And so from the age of three, when I had been diagnosed with the asthma, I would just kind of stay inside a lot and draw, while like everyone else was outside playing and... Uh, on top of that, I had also developed these severe allergies to... Oh, what's Molly doing? Hey, Molly. You trying to add to the podcast? What's going on, girl? What's going on? <laughs> that is Molly the Beagle. I'm trying to give her a little part here. So, um, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, the uh, allergies. I developed severe allergies to... Pretty much like everything. I'm saying everything from pollen, trees, grass, fresh cut grass. That was pretty bad. Dust, like all dust, just regular dust that's in your house on the window ledge and stuff like that. Cats, dogs, horses, any animal, everything in the world was giving me these insane allergy attacks. Probably because I had stayed inside so much and I didn't get out into the dirt to build up a good immune system, like a tolerance. So yeah, being inside, needless to say, I didn't have many friends. I was never a part of a team, never on a team. There were no sports, nothing like that. So I got into things like magic. I loved magic, I loved magic tricks. Magicians were so cool, card tricks were so cool. I knew like 50 to 100 different card tricks I could do. Um, I loved wizards. I loved the idea of a wizard being able to conjure up things with his mind and his will and some spell words. Later on in life, I got right into Dungeons and Dragons and anything fantasy related, anything medieval times, kings, queens, castles, and of course, comic books like Batman. Batman's my favorite. Uh, Calvin and Hobbes was awesome. All that kind of like tinkery hobby stuff, you know, stay at home, stay inside and, and tinker away at it. So my parents were divorced and my mom was going through boyfriends like crazy and kind of living like a fun party life. So her side of the family was very, very poor. She came from a family of eight kids. So like they were very much into partying, into breaking the rules, being wild and free, having fun and all us kids just kind of ran wild with our cousins out in the streets getting into trouble And uh, while on my dad's side of the family, you know, they were still poor, but responsible, more conservative, like they followed the rules, they didn't get into trouble. And so my dad would take me and my brother to his place on the weekends. And I mean, it must have been a nightmare, you know, with with his point of view of like, how kids should act and everything trying to harness us little hellions running wild. But I mean, he did try. We learned to read and write. We had some temporary structure for a few days and then back to the wild roller coaster lifestyle over at my mom's. And uh, the cool thing about, uh, again, this kind of ties in with my duality, is that um, like I have both in me. I have the structure and the party side. And the interesting thing to note is that like the poorer side, like my mom's family, who there was more kids and they had less. They all kind of stuck together and they all like banded together in these like little friend crews. And like, they're all still like really good friends. And while on my dad's side, it's like it's like more cold. So like my uncles and my dad, none of them talk to each other anymore. There's like all this like, like animosity between them. So that's just like an interesting thing to note between like the way that the two different families are. And, and growing up like that and, and feeling that, that energy. Um, although my grandparents had this cottage that they had built with the help of my dad and my uncles back in the early days, way before I was even born. And it was this giant A-frame building and it was all cedar wood inside and there was a wood fireplace. The front wall of the A-frame was all glass window and there was a loft bedroom upstairs, and you'd have to climb a wrought iron spiral staircase. It was so cool. And it was all overlooking a beautiful lawn and overlooking a beautiful clean lake. And we would visit there during the summers when school was out, sometimes for a week, sometimes for like a full month. And when you're a kid not looking at a calendar, the summers just seemed endless, like I remember summer was like, you know, like half the year, but really summer was like literally two months. Uh, One summer when I was just about seven years old, my dad was driving us to the cottage from New Brunswick, going to Nova Scotia. And while we were in Nova Scotia, uh, my brother was in the backseat and we had a terrible car accident. My brother's leg was broken because he had his leg all twisted in the seatbelt. You know kids are. They sit weird in the seatbelt. And a uh, four by four post from a hay wagon came crashing through the front windshield and smashed me right in my head, cracking my skull open. There were bits and pieces of skull and brains hanging out. So brain injury, uh, a month at least in the hospital, maybe three months. I don't even remember. And... Uh, it was totally the other guy's fault. See, the guy was pulling a hay wagon out of one driveway, and all he had to do was go from one driveway literally like 25 feet into the next driveway, but he was doing it at night in, you know when it's like nighttime and there's not even any stars, there's not even the moon's out or nothing, it's pitch black, and he didn't have reflectors on the back of his hay wagon. He had nothing, so there was no way to see what was in front of us, and we just kinda like drove right into this thing. so that made the tensions between my two family sides like even worse. They like they hated each other already like when my parents got diver- divorced, like they each took the side of their own child. But like now that made it like way worse and there was no hiding it from the kids back in those days. Like everyone like back in the day, everyone would just unleash their hell fury on each other in public, in front of strangers, in front of the doctors and the hospital staff, like There was no couth in the matter, there was no diplomacy, just like full out war. And I gotta say man, like kids learn from their environments, yo, they totally do. You can tell your kids how to act all you want, but that is not the lesson that's gonna stick. The stuff that sticks is the deeper stuff. The passive-aggressive tendencies, the mood swings, how you treat your husband or wife. Kids see that shit, and it becomes a part of them, and then they reenact that shit. Maybe at school, maybe later on in life, maybe you don't even know that they're reenacting it, but they are, man. They're taking all your bullshit, and they're, they're redoing the whole thing. Uh, the following year after the accident We moved, so my mom, my brother, and I, we moved to Nova Scotia to live with my aunt in a mansion that her rich husband had left her, who had just passed away. And it was just a huge party again. So I started school in a whole new town. And this new town that we were in was close to Halifax. And now Halifax, for anyone who doesn't know, is the big city. And, you know, all the big city influences. And this is back in the 80s. And they would influence the surrounding areas, like the small town that we lived in. So being a little kid, as I was, I listened to the same kind of shit my parents listened to, which was country music. I mean, I had tons of my own country music albums. And now with this new school, the kids were all listening to rap music. I'd never heard rap music before. And at first I was like, wow, this sucks. But um, after listening to it a little bit, like I got hooked. I got hooked on the hip hop, man. And I convinced my mom to buy me a Rap tracks tape. It was Rap Tracks 2 actually. And that was it for the rest of my life. Like I only listened to rap music. Everything else sucked. It didn't have the flows. It didn't have the style. They didn't have the charisma, the charm, or even the knowledge. And I found this, like, learning experience happening with this old-school hip-hop back in the 80s that it just wasn't being conveyed in other forms of music. Like, other music was just, like, a catchy hook that will repeat, like, 100 times. And the verses were, like, maybe, like, 20, 30 words at the most. But hip-hop was, like, jam-packed with all these words and all this knowledge. And you were learning this, like... You were learning information, and it wasn't necessarily like from the streets, like hard kind of shit like it became later on. It was like genius kids coming up with like these, it was poetry, and I don't know, I loved it. It just so, it resonated with my soul, like inside and out, and this was the beginning of my thirst for knowledge, and I just loved learning, and I loved learning anything, anything I could learn about anything. I just always just wanted to like soak it up like a sponge, um... So since my dad lived in New Brunswick and we now lived in Nova Scotia, my parents on my dad's side also lived in Nova Scotia and they would take us on the weekends instead of him. And we would go to the cottage quite often. And in the summer, my dad would come down and join us when he had time off work. So at this point, um, I now had a half sister on my dad's side who I call my sister from the same mister. And so let the sibling rivalry begin. The fights between us three kids were becoming so annoying. Everything I had, they wanted. Everything I did, they wanted to do. If I was in the paddle boat, they had to be in the paddle boat. But trying to paddle backwards and make it just go in circles kind of shit, you know? Always like super annoying. Uh, If I was laying on the raft, floating on the lake, listening to rap music and my Walkman, they'd be trying to swim out to flip the raft over. And there was just always this fight fighting over the middle seat. And if I'm like, I don't want the middle seat anymore. I want the window seat. Oh, Jay wants the window seat. Well, now I want the window seat. Like it was a constant fight for what the other had. I was really into ninja movies back in the day. And I remember seeing brief glimpses of these monks meditating, like right before the bad guys would attack, you just get like this quick little glimpse of a monk maybe sitting in lotus position and oming or something and then bad guys would attack and the monks would fly off into the sky fighting them and uh oh and ninja turtles too was watching lots of ninja turtles back then master splinter would always tell the turtles he needed to meditate on a certain aspect of what they were dealing with um so here at the cottage. There weren't any turtles, but there were these massive stones protruding up from the ground, like stones that were so large, like four or five feet high, so large that the bulldozers and the backhoes and the cranes could not remove them because they're kind of like an iceberg. They're much larger below the ground and like wrapped in tree roots and shit like that, and so they stayed there on the front lawn. One day. After having enough of the fighting with my brother and my sister, I just decided, you know what? I'm going to go try and meditate on that big rock. And I went and I sat there with my legs folded, full lotus style, something my dad had taught us kids to do. And I shut my eyes, and my brother and sister wanted nothing to do with it. It was too boring. It was too quiet for their little child minds. And so they finally left me alone, and I had some peace and quiet. And the fighting stopped and my grandparents got some peace and quiet. I mean, yeah, it was their vacation too. Like they were grandparents, but they still had jobs in the city. And like, this was their only chill time of the year. And I was around nine years old when I began to meditate like this. Uh, It wasn't a regular routine practice. I mean, I didn't even know what meditation was other than, like I said, seeing monks and splinter do it. But I did it often enough at the cottage to notice a change. So the change would be in myself and then a change in the world around me. So like I became calm. My brother and sister became calm my grandparents got into a chill mood and like this calm energy sort of surrounded the entire cottage area around us. But like, I didn't stick with it on a regular routine. Cause like I said, we didn't have much discipline back then, like on my mom's side of things when we had to go home back to the city. In fact, I don't really remember very much discipline other than maybe having like a set bedtime. And, uh, I guess this ties in with like the two family sides of things. So like at my mom's with my cousins, we would be like two, three hours away from a home that we would drive on our bikes with my cousins and we'd just be off like in the woods or we'd be off driving through rivers with our bikes, like going through trails, like totally unsupervised. On my dad's side, you know, it was like, hold your brother's hand, don't leave the driveway, don't go out on the road, don't go down the street, like, we always had to, like, super, like, stick close to the home, they always had to have an eye on us, it was, like, this crazy, like, watchful thing, like, oh, gotta watch these kids, like, um, and we weren't allowed to go anywhere or do anything, like, even, like, trying to go out on the lake in the boat, like, oh, no, just paddle around where we can see you, whereas, like, on my mom's side, they'd be like, sure, go down the river, too, come back, just come back by bedtime, so, uh, Yeah, on my mom's side, it was a lot of like, I guess on both sides, a lot of candy, a lot of sugar, kind of like go, go, go. Um, We were these wildlings in the summer, like like elves, you know, like forest folk out in nature every day. And in the summer, for whatever reason, my asthma and my allergies seemed to just melt away or they just weren't a concern or or something I looked past, I guess, you know, because we were having so much fun. But then when it was time to go back to school, back to the city, I kind of like stopped being my true authentic self and the walls went back up. And I remember like noticing like this difference in myself that I couldn't just be this free spirited, like little forest woodland hippie kid, like running around and saying the funny things like you had to like act different and, and you know, hold a different demeanor and everything when you went back to the city. And everybody else, everybody acted different in, in the city, even in the towns that we lived in. So I was still only listening to rap music and uh, the occasional Disney soundtrack for like the Aladdin movie, stuff like that. Um, I listened to rap for most of my life, just until like the last few years, actually, within the last, I would say eight years, I've really started to open up and expand uh, my tastes in music. In grade 10 in high school, maybe it was grade nine, I found a tape on the ground with the tape all torn out and it was broken. And it looked at the cassette tape and it was Snoop Doggy Dog's Doggy Style album. And I'm guessing some parent's kid probably had their parent's car, were driving around, forgot it in the tape deck, and then the parents got in the car and heard it and immediately tore it out of their car, pulled the tape all out, broke it, and tossed it out the window. When I found this, this was like, the gr- I didn't know who Snoop Doggy Dog was. I didn't know anything about it. Um, even though i loved rap music i still hadn't gotten into like the gangster shit um and so i pop i fixed it i used to fix tapes so i would take like a little piece of scotch tape and tape it and take an exacto blade and slice it and Uh, so there was a little skip in it but it was like the greatest discovery of my life at that time like they were swearing on cassette tape like what like i've never heard swears on a cassette tape before i'm like they're allowed to do that oh my god this is so cool so like i would hide that from my mom uh my cousins and i would like secretly listen to it in my bedroom and then uh, i remember my mom found it one time she's like what are you listening to oh my god and she took the tape away And when my mom used to take shit away, she would just like go put it on top of the fridge where we couldn't see because we were short. And I remember one day I was like snooping around top of the fridge. I'm like, oh, my Snoop Doggy Dog tape. So I went in the room and I made like 10 copies of that tape. And I put the original tape back on top of the fridge. So she had no idea that I had like all these backup copies. Whenever she would find it, she's like, what are you doing with that tape again? And I'm like, "Uh," and she would take it away and throw it in the garbage. And then I'd always have like a backup. Um, So yeah, that led me. To learn about and listen to more gangster rap, and I got so deep into the gangster life that it wasn't even funny. Like the villains were of stories were always my favorite characters, and here they were being glorified, like they do in like old mob movies, you know, like Goodfellas, Casino, or uh, Godfather, which I watched relentlessly. Like I had those movies memorized, and I even thought when I was a kid that I would eventually be like, uh, and I didn't think I would be like a a gangster gangster, like a hip hop gangster. I always thought of myself like someday being like a a mafia gangster, like wearing suits and smoking cigars and that kind of shit. And I used to think that one day I'm going to own a nightclub in the city and I'm going to run drugs through the nightclub. And I didn't even know what drugs were. I hadn't even smoked a joint yet. And I still remember thinking that one day I'm going to need to kill someone. And I would do these little thought experiments in my mind about what it would be like to have to murder someone in order to keep my business going, in order to protect my franchise or protect my family or some shit like that. And I was getting really hardened from all the gangster rap and from these gangster movies. And like that soft little gentle elf creature that I was before in the forest having fun in life was slowly melting away, like shrinking down. And then it got a little extra rough. So moving into high school, because uh, in my city, we had skinheads. So some of these guys had been failing high school over and over and like we're getting into their 20s now in high school. They didn't, GED wasn't like really a big thing back in the day. So people didn't really opt for that. They would just keep going back to high school. But they kept going to school basically to sell drugs. Uh, And then came in, like, the little white kids with baggy pants and twisted caps. And we're listening to our rap music. And that began the wars. What on the outside looked like the good guys, us, versus the bad guys, the skinheads. I mean, who wants skinheads in their school or even in their city or anything? That's just crazy. It's crazy talk. And uh, we hated them for being racist and not accepting of everyone. And they hated us for being, like, open-minded For being accepting of other races and cultures, because like that was the climate of our generation. It's what we're being taught through music, through television and movies, uh, acceptance. And, uh, but that was just the surface story. You know, that wasn't really the truth going on underneath it all. Beneath it all, and there's a few parts to this, beneath it all was that. These skinheads had a pre-existing drugs sale paradigm at all the high schools. And now these new kids were coming in and selling their own drugs. And this was cutting in on the skinheads market, and they didn't like that. And so there was basically uh, a turf war. Uh, The other side to this story was that there were 1,200 students in the high school. Uh, One of them was a black guy, and one of them was of Indian descent, this little Hindu girl. And that was it. You know, and the skinheads never even screwed with them. They weren't even on the radar. So really, like, what was this whole, like, tolerance thing that we were supposed to be doing? Like, we were these social justice warriors defending all the other races, but it's like, there's not even any other races. Like, it's primarily, like, all white people here. And I'm like, why are the skinheads hating on other white people? And it just didn't make any sense. And I mean, like, those two kids, basically, like, they never even got fucked with. So from my perspective, like, they were just regular, normal kids. They weren't even into these gangs or anything. They were, like, really nice. The girl, the Hindu girl, she was, like, super sweet. Like, I talked to her all the time. And the guy, the guy I talked to, too, and I remember the principal of the school was like, yo, we got to nip this, because the black guy showed up, like, later on, and the principal was like, yo, we got to nip this in the bud right away. That guy cannot cannot be allowed to get in with all these gangs. Like, it would look really bad for our school if the one black kid is in a gang. And so they offered this guy, like, all these sporting opportunities to be on the hockey team or the football team and the basketball team. And the school paid for everything for him to keep him out of the gangsta shit. Uh, Another thing was this, like, some kids just wanted to fight like they were always angry, all this teenage angst, and they just wanted to smash some heads. So they would go out and they would align with one of the sides, the gangster kids or the skinheads. And so uh, all the punks and the skaters, they all hung out with the skinheads. And then all the rapper kids who liked rap and or anyone, all the hippies all kind of hung out together. Uh, and it was, it's, I don't know, it, it wasn't anything any deeper for them. I mean, uh, for the kids who just wanted to fight, that is. Like, it wasn't about being tolerant or trying to protect anyone else's race. And it wasn't about drugs. Like, they just wanted to scrap. It didn't matter who it was with. They just wanted to knock some knock some heads in, kick some teeth in. And uh, I remember going to high school, and I wouldn't go without weapons. I had these giant hunting knives And a hand pistol replica pump action pellet gun. And I would pump that shit like a hundred times and then put it in my backpack before school. And back then there was no metal detectors. Nobody searched anyone at the door. There was one police officer that worked at the school, but like he didn't actually do anything about anything. Like there'd be fights all the time and he'd just be up in his office like, la 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 -la, derpy derp. Uh, Luckily enough for me, I never needed to use any of these weapons, uh, any of that shit in my backpack. But uh, I also had like, this boosted confidence that it was there so like maybe I didn't put off that fear aroma or whatever that the skinheads uh, would would smell (laughs) and like so they never really fucked with me too often like because of that but they did ended up screwing with me a few times but I'll I'll talk more about that in a little bit um but first I had this one friend through all of high school that was it one friend this guy named Corey and we would spend our lunch breaks in the art room and one day we decided um because of hearing this rap crew from vancouver who uh you know they're just a couple canadians and we were like like damn if they can do it like we could do it too man and so we started writing raps and then later on we would figure out how to make beats on our own computers at home and figure out how to record and like you know all the technical nerdy stuff about recording and so uh Sometimes I would go, so I hung out with Corey every day at the lunchroom and on breaks and shit like that is, you know, power in numbers, just me and my one buddy. But sometimes uh, I would go out with the gangsta kids outside because their gang leader was sitting next to me in class one day and he could see like looked over at what I was doing, he saw that I could draw really good and I was doing these little graffiti pieces on paper and he really liked my work and so he made me their official graffiti artist and he told everyone, everyone in the crew, that they had to protect me or whatever, but like I never actually did any graffiti anywhere, I never tagged the gang's name or anything like that, so um, I started wearing the bandana, hanging that out of my back pocket, showing that I was a part of their crew and that made shit different like I was getting bullied by the jocks and pushed around in the lobby at lunchtime like I had to walk through the lobby like you have to walk through the lobby there's no other way around it but if you had like baggy pants on like you weren't allowed and they would beat the shit out of you or just walking through the halls between class I would get jumped and messed with in the washroom in the hallway it was like non-stop man and uh I would like have my book bag emptied out on the floor and shit like that. Uh, The skinheads would walk over to me minding my business and like take the headphones off my head and what are you listening to, boy? And then they would hear, of course, rap music. And then they would say like quite loud to everyone, oh, he's listening to that nigger jive. And then they would just beat the shit out of me because like I was listening to rap music. But uh, once that bandana was hanging out of my back pocket, like, with the gang colors, I was, like, never fucked with again. And, I mean, I had the weapons in my backpack, and that was for, like, outside of school. Inside the school, I didn't want to get kicked out of school, so I never pulled that shit out. But, like, they fucked with me in school. But outside, like, out in the parking lot or even out in the street, like, n- no one fucked with me. And I-, and I never understood. I just equated it to, like, you know, having this, like, fearlessness. Because, like, yeah, you're going to fuck with me now? Like, I'll fuck with you like for real so um if Corey wasn't at school i would go hang out with these gangsta kids outside and like i was showing them mine and Corey's rap songs that we were recording at home and like they were really digging it but uh i didn't want to get caught up in all their bullshit so for the most part like i said i would just be in the art room at lunch and at breaks like with my friend Corey. then this one dude named mark Mark was dumb. He didn't understand what the bandana meant or anything like that. Mark was a piece of shit jock who bullied me, like, right in front of teachers. And because Mark was, like, the head of the football team or whatever fucking sport he was in, the teachers would just smile and say, Now, Mark, you leave Jason alone. And then the teacher would look the other way and Mark would laugh and go back to pounding me into the lockers. And when high school started, Mark accidentally found me in the art room one day at lunchtime. And he started up his old games again. And uh, Corey was there too, but Corey didn't know about mine and Mark's history from, from junior high. So Mark came in and he didn't realize that me and Corey were friends. And Mark just grabbed me and started smashing my head into the lockers repeatedly. And picking me up and banging my entire body against the lockers, like bam, bam. And like, I lost my breath a couple times and Corey was caught off guard by like the whole shit going down and he was saying like yo yo like that's not cool man like yo that's not cool and Mark's like yo you just never mind and now Corey was more gangster than I was and uh he said to me afterwards like after Mark left he's like man this shit is never happening again and we formulated a plan the next day Mark came in again like I knew he would right on schedule and I was the bait. I had even moved my desk in view of the door so he could see me sitting there from the hallway. And when Mark came in, Corey was hiding behind the door. Corey slammed the door shut, locked it, startled the shit out of Mark, and that was it, man. We gave Mark the beat down of his life, and that piece of shit never set foot in that art room again. Mark never even looked sideways at me, and when we were walking through the hallway, Mark would walk like on the other side of the hallway or turn around and go the other way. like he knew, like, yo don't fuck with jay um uh, at one point uh, my mom had moved us so me and my brother out of the city where full houses were like super, ch- super cheap you could rent like a full house for like four or five hundred bucks and lo and behold most of the skinheads were from out there too like out in the country and i began to see the ignorance for what it was so poor parenting from other poorly parented people who also had poor parents and you could see like the hillbilly look to them under the shaved heads under the under the bomber jackets under the combat boots and they all spoke with that like country twang hey boy what you doing on my bus anyways so like the ignorance had spread that way into these young kids and we all had to ride the same bus. I somehow talked with these guys on the bus and became like a, a mediator between like the two sides almost, like a temporary friend. So the bus was a no fight zone. It's like the watering hole where the animals don't eat each other. Because if you fight on a bus, you're kicked off the bus for life. All the buses, forever. Forever. So nobody wanted to do that. Nobody wanted to piss off their parents, you know, and make their parents have to make arrangements to drive their dumb asses to and from the school every damn day. And so we all sort of got along. And uh, I really began to understand their side of the story with the drugs and all that and them being poor and needing the money to survive and their parents were like not even giving them their own food. They were coming from the poorest of poor country folk, like a fend for yourself environment. Meanwhile, like I'm going home and my mom's cooking us dinner and buying our clothes and probably making my bed and shit like that. So like there's a huge difference between us in so many ways. Uh, Let's take a little drink there. Getting a little raw. Um, We were never allowed to have a job, even though we asked sometimes. My parents were adamant on us not working as long as we're in school. So I never got out to experience that kind of stuff. Like most of my friends worked at fast food restaurants or in the mall doing retail and they learned like social skills how to talk to girls how to talk to bosses and they all had money because of it and were able to buy all this cool shit like the clothes they wanted and meanwhile we're like we're eating food bank food we're shopping at kmart like you get one pair of shoes for the whole like high school for the whole school year And you damn well better not ruin them within the first three months because you're getting another pair. So you're holding them together with duct tape and shit like that and scotch tape. So Kmart is like the ghetto version of Walmart before Walmart bought them all up back in the day. So I totally feel like I missed out on that growing opportunity with like all the other kids taking a pee break. Woo. Okay. I am talking up a storm here. I don't know if you guys can tell, but... Okay, I don't really drink coffee anymore. Like, I'll drink one coffee per week. So when I do drink a coffee, it's like pew, 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 pew. And I had a large light roast from Starbucks right before I started doing this show today. Just to make sure I had like the pow, 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 that I needed to get through the whole thing. So uh, anyways, back to the story my mom's boyfriend who to make it easier i just called him my stepdad because he was with us for so long it just was easier than saying my mom's boyfriend um he worked in a print shop and he was a master pressman who bit by bit started buying machines and building his own print shop right in our house so he built that right in our house like he started with like a little folding machine clack 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 and he would just like Pick up folding jobs here and there, an extra 30, 40 bucks just to fold some shit. Uh, the man was evil. Like, he makes the devil look like the fucking tooth fairy. Like, I'll say that right now. He was a piece of shit human being right from the get go. Nobody liked him. None of my family could see what my mom saw in this guy. My mom lost all her friends because of this guy. All my family stopped coming around because of him. He was rude obnoxious, a chauvinistic pig. Uh, It's like he had no filter ever. But in between it all, he was a super smooth talker. Like he had the gift of gab, the golden tongue when he wanted to be. And I remember at the age of 13, I started working for him in the print shop doing menial tasks, you know, never realizing I was being groomed to someday work there full time myself. And I hated every minute of it. Like, I was supposed to be doing homework and assignments, but instead they had me running presses and working in the darkroom and running these dangerous folding machines and these giant guillotine cutters. So now, fast forward a little bit. I'm about 16 years old, maybe, and we got the internet at home. Uh, My stepdad got sick of paying a graphic designer, who really... The graphic designer was this sweet little French guy who became a friend of the family. And like we always loved when he came over because it made my stepdad put on like his nice guy act. And it was nice for as long as the guy was. and like, he was nice as long as the guy was there. So my stepdad knew about this car accident insurance money that my brother and I would be getting. And he did some snooping around. and He found out that we were allowed like we couldn't have the money. It was with a trustee. And he found out that we were allowed to get some of it if it was for our own education. So he got his grimy little hands in there and got some money to buy, quote, me and my brother, in other words, him, a brand new top of the line computer. And then he got an extra lump out to buy a graphic design suite, which was like a thousand bucks back in like the early 90s. That's a lot of money for, a, for computer software, um, like especially for us, a family barely scraping by. I mean, he was still working. He still didn't have a full-time print shop. He still worked at a print shop and was trying to like build his own little thing. But um, but I used the computer. My brother used it. And then my stepdad learned graphic design very slowly by asking other designers at other print shops. And then he finally cut out that sweet designer guy who had been coming over. So um, yeah, so I still, I still have no friends except for Corey at this time. So I'm quite powerless. I'm still a nerd. I'm still into fantasy stuff, although now mixed in with gangsta shit here and there. And I just felt like so powerless at home. And I mean, home, if you remember from back in the day, home is like where all my power was at. Home's where you go to be your your true authentic self, right? You don't have to have those walls up. And now I'm having to be someone else at home. Like home's where my power was my entire life. And now... Now the wall, like the walls are supposed to come down. We just be ourselves, and now I'm not being myself at home. So like, there's like this energy suck going on, and uh, I'm looking at the internet and I'm thinking about something to search for, because back in the day, it wasn't Facebook and it wasn't Google, and you just have to kind of like think of things and then go to a search engine and, and search for it, and then maybe that search engine didn't have it. You go to another search engine and try and find a website about it. Um, and I thought as I'm sitting there, like, hmm, I'm thinking about like being powerless and all that. And I think, oh, what about black magic? Like, that's got to be a real thing, right? So I started searching for spells and things like that. And I started learning about Wicca and witchcraft and magic and, and the black magic and the dark arts and the occult. And I quickly realized that because of this threefold law, that whatever I put out, would come back to haunt me times three. But that didn't stop me really. I I fucking hated my stepdad so much. I tried to do binding spells on him. I tried to silence him. I tried to make him die like a few times. Uh, I tried all the things, but in the end, like, he just kept growing stronger and stronger. And his business grew, and his ego grew, and his anger and his hate grew, and his outbursts just became commonplace. And eventually, like, everyone in the house was walking around on eggshells around him 24-7. We did not want to upset this man. He had mastered the art of freaking out to get whatever he wanted, you know, and now we're all trapped, And I was especially a little more trapped because I had begun doing the graphic design for the company. And he would tell me things like, if this doesn't get done, we don't get to eat this week and we can't pay rent and we'll have to move again. And you don't want to move again, do you? And I felt all that pressure that I needed to do these things, you know, because my mom and my brother depended on me to do it. After high school was over, I had this opportunity you know, to use my insurance money to go to a fancy fine arts school, this fine arts university in Halifax. But I went there and I took the tour and they didn't even have a computer department. They literally had three old ass Mac computers in a tiny room. And I was getting more into computers and computer art than I was at my fine art skills. Like I I didn't want to paint anymore. I didn't want to draw anymore. It was so much easier to just click a mouse. And, uh, I had started building my own computers at home and building them for other people, and it was a time. And like also in the back of my mind, I'm like, I can't leave the family. I can't leave them without the graphic designer and somebody to run the print shop. Like, how's my mom and brother gonna eat? How are they gonna survive? I can't leave them behind with this asshole. And uh, this is back in the day too, when when owning a computer made you a super nerd. So like nobody had them. They they were unheard of, and nobody understood them. The internet was still using up your phone lines. Like, this is back in the day. And so I decided to not go to school and keep working for my stepfather for the reasons I just mentioned, and because we were making so much money. But I didn't get to have any of that money. Like, in my hands, everything went into this melting pot. So anything my mom earned, everything, it all went into the pot that he controlled, of course. But whatever we wanted, we got like a new CD, got it. New clothes, got it. New sound system for the house, got it. New TV, got it. Uh, We were like the only family I knew who rented movies every night of the week. Like instead of watching TV shows, we would rent like two or three movies. Like nobody else did that. Like all new releases. We drove nice cars. But again, it was all at an expense to our sanity because still he would freak out. Out, even though shit was going good, he would freak out over the tiniest little things. And then, him and my mother had an altercation where she got abused and she left. So, at this point, I had gotten all my insurance money from the trustees who were holding it. Like, I was about 18 or 19 years old. So, me, my mom, my brother. We had moved homes at this time over 22 times. That's an average of one move per year my entire life. We had finally been living in a really nice house, renting it, of course, and the owners couldn't handle it anymore. They couldn't afford to keep paying the mortgage on this thing, like even with us renting it. So they put the house up for sale. My mom and my stepdad were losing their shit. It was a huge fight about having to move again and just more fights, and so... I went behind their backs and I contacted the homeowners myself. It was this nice lesbian couple, and I offered to buy the house. And they were like, "What? You're just a kid. You can't buy a house." And I told them about my insurance money, and they're like, "Okay, well, maybe talk to a bank." So they agreed to sell it to me, and then we wouldn't have to move. Um, I told my mom, and she said, "No, no, that's for school." But eventually, she gave in to the pressure from me and my stepdad, who was on board with the plan, like fully. Uh, he even printed fake pay stubs like on those pink, yellow, and white sheets that you get like the the carbon copy I made it look super official it said I was making a shit ton of money for over the last two years and to help give me credit to buy the house so... He never told the bankers that he was my mom's boyfriend, that he lived with us in the house or anything like that. Like He never told them anything. He just said that he was my employer. Here's the pay stubs. Yeah, Jay's a good employee. We're not going to fire him anytime soon. He's great. So yeah, uh, because of that, the house was mine. All they wanted, they said, yeah, put your money in the bank. Put all of your insurance money in this bank and then we can have the house. It was also the same credit union that the landlords, that the homeowners were using. So they weren't going to lose the house from a bank point of view. They're like, yeah, we get to keep the house. We get all this kid's insurance money in our bank. Yeah, great. Just give, sign it over to this kid. He'll make the mortgage payments from now on. Um. So yeah, the house is mine and it wasn't longer than a summer had passed. And my mom Uh, after being beat up and put in the hospital by him she's like telling me like kick him out kick him out you gotta kick him out he's gotta go but back then um, I had thought because of like the way that I was raised and everything to think that my credit was so important that life was so important that I was supposed to be somebody and I was supposed to have all this stuff and all these things and, and I thought for sure, like, you know, here I am, like, 19 years old, and I thought it was so cool that I had everything. Um, And they had burned it into my mind that my credit was more important than anything. And so I thought I needed to keep the job, to keep everything afloat. Like, I needed that print shop in my life. Like, I didn't want to lose that lifestyle, especially from being so poor our entire lives. And now we're having a little something-something, and I wanted to keep it, you know, to hang on to it. My mother's cousin's son, had been helping me with my own company. I had a little advertising agency and we were doing sales and marketing ideas in the city. We were pulling in like 2500 every week, which was unheard of in that part of the country, especially for two young guys like us, 19 and 20, 21 years old. And we would blow it all on women and booze every weekend and start over on Monday. Like it was a never ending money trio. Uh, This really only lasted another three to four months of me and my stepfather working and living in the house without my mom there. My dad had taken my brother away to live with him out in the country. And my dad warned me that what I was doing was wrong. And then my stepdad moved his ex-wife into the house and their two kids because he wasn't allowed to see his kids unless she was allowed to move in there and then began their weird strategy of trying to push me out of the equation so eventually when he sprung his plan I went and did something completely out of character that he didn't count on see his friend had called me up and told me about the plan I was like yo Jay you're a cool kid but this guy's like he's got a plan he's trying to Trying to fuck you over. He's gonna take your house from you. And here's the plan. And the guy told me the whole thing. So I made these moves to have them evicted from the house. I kicked them out onto the street and I ended up declaring personal bankruptcy at the age of 19. And I was owing the banks and credit cards over a hundred thousand dollars. And then I found out about the other credit cards. So he had used my personal information to open up credit cards in my name. Like he had my social insurance number because I worked at the print shop. I mean, it was all under the table, but like we did these little scams. Like We ran money through the account to make it look like I was getting paid a regular salary, like all this money and making deductions so I could later get unemployment insurance and keep working under the table while getting the unemployment insurance and there was these training modules these mentorship programs that I was entered into where the government paid me to take a course like a student loan kind of thing uh with him with the stepdad as the teacher he was teaching me like all these presses that you couldn't learn about anywhere else uh, there are all kinds of these little things that we did so basically he had my personal info is what I'm getting at and he used it to open up credit cards at like 5,000 a pop, and he ran them all up on me. I didn't even know they existed until I declared bankruptcy, but because he used his own phone number, and he got all the mail at a P.O. box that only he had the key for, so I had no idea this shit was going on. Declaring bankruptcy was so rough. Like I felt like a failure. My house was gone. My cars were gone. The motorcycle, the Volvo, the van, everything I owned was gone. After the, my business was done, like I couldn't keep anything going. I couldn't keep doing my advertising agency because I needed the print shop in order to make that work. So after the smoke had cleared from everything, I said, fuck it. I moved into the city and started to work at a call center to try and pay off some of the debt back to the bankruptcy trustees. And that shit was still lingering. And see, I tried to get graphic design jobs in the city, but my stepdad had gone around and he talked to every design shop and every print shop in the city and he had my name blacklisted. They wouldn't even talk to me. They didn't want to touch it. All the printers had like this little secret allegiance with each other. They helped each other out when one didn 't have a certain kind of paper or ink or whatever the thing was that they needed. They would owe the other they 'd owe the other one a favor, you know, like the mafia so i 'm at this call center, and that 's when I met my new best friend. Uh, you might remember I said in high school, me and Corey had made rap songs together, and like I had the recording technical side down. And my new best friend, he was doing rap shows too. He was doing live shows in the city, at a bar downtown. And sometimes like at raves and shit like that. And they were rapping over other people's vinyl records where they would have like an instrumental without the words. And I was like, yo, I make my own beats and I record and you guys do live shows. So like, let's work together. And so the two elements had merged and we started up our own rap crew called element control uh this lasted for like five to six years i think and we played shows routinely like weekend after weekend just busting our ass touring around the east coast of canada we made homemade cassette tapes we made cds probably about four or five albums worth but this is where i got heavy into drugs though and this is where this is where it all began. This is where I'd like my story to begin. But I just had to get that that early stuff out of the way first. Like, give you guys the background. You know, set the foundation. So, uh, I say so a lot. <laughs> About a year had passed. There were three core members to the rap crew. We went through several DJs. They didn't seem to stick. Uh, there was a breakdance crew that followed us around to all our shows. But, like, we were still broke, working bullshit jobs, trying to get by. And... We all decided to go to college together, the three of us, to become certified graphic designers. (laughs) I know it sounds silly. Even though I had already been doing it since the age of 13 and I was now 20 or 21, I still wanted that piece of paper to say that I knew what I already knew. And also after all my tales of living the designer's dream, my two buddies wanted in on that too. They wanted the money, they wanted the houses, they wanted the cars, they wanted all the shit. But so began our drug years. I'm saying from magic mushrooms to cocaine, LSD, PCP, crystal meth, weed, prescription drugs, anything I could get my hands on was my drug of choice. We sold drugs. We did the drugs. We were becoming these like minor rap stars. Like at least our alter egos were but, like, off the stage, we were still nobodies. You know, we were still shopping at the stores. No one knew who we were. People weren't hounding us in the streets for autographs or anything. But, man, on the weekend on the stage, like, we were untouchable. It was so cool. And we were so focused. We focused all our efforts on getting shows and performing so that we could be those cool guys on stage. Like, the more time we were on stage, the more we were those cool guys. We were off the stage, we were back to being nobodies. And of course, was the drugs and the after party or trying to sell drugs to pay rent. And I tried to sell drugs to pay my tuition in, in college. And it worked for the most part. I mean, I went in debt a few times to my friends, but I ended up paying everybody off. And the last thing I ever wanted was to ask my parents for help. Because, you know, like, I had made it and lost it all. And I still felt like a loser, like a failure at life. And even back then, Back then, back in the early 2000s, like us young 20-somethings, we all wanted to be at the top right away without working for it. You know, we thought we each deserved our own cell phone and the best cable package and $300 of groceries every month and the luxury apartments. But like, how can you get all that without doing a little bit of dirt now and then? Selling some drugs. So there's that so again. Fast forward a little bit. College is almost over and... We found ourselves a real manager. Well, so, so we had a friend doing our managing, but like he wasn't like a manager manager. And we met this girl who was a professional coordinator. So she kind of knew a little bit about like coordinating and working with people and uh, managing resources and shit like that. She just didn't know anything about hip hop. And uh, the cool thing is that she believed in us. That was the difference. Like She believed in us authentically. And that was worth a lot at the time. And like I said, it was a lady who I fell in love with. And she fell in love with me, or she fell in love with my alter ego into it. She was 10 years older than me, and I was 24 at the time. So yeah, she was 34. And like I remember my idiot friends used to like give me props for hooking up with an older chick and shit like that. And there began the downfall of our whole rap crew and i remember my dad pulling me aside one day and going no you know son and my dad has the red green voice (laughs) when i make make my dad impression you know son you have some truly dedicated friends there with your little band buddies like those guys are good to you the only thing that could ever break you guys apart is a woman and then he sort of chuckled but like he was right this manager lady began to try and take way too much creative control over our music like we were creative uh, flows like we would go with the flow so like we didn't have structured meetings and shit like that she was trying to do like okay well it's four o'clock on a Thursday you're gonna make two songs today and like that's not how it works like we might make a beat we might smoke some weed and play some video games and maybe tomorrow maybe i'll wake up at three in the morning and maybe write something like we're all over the place nothing was nothing was like structured like that and that kind of like that kind of like fucked with us like trying to always have to like structure our creativity because it just never worked we would get together and just bang our heads off the wall nothing would come out But at the same time, she was making moves. She was getting us in touch with major recording labels like Universal and Warner. So we kind of ignored her bullshit, you know, until it was time to move away from each other. So she had gotten a really good job in another province that paid all kinds of money at a university. And that was in Nova Scotia in Antigonish and she had this plan. She wanted us all to move there with her. She was gonna work the job, and we would work on our music, and she was gonna use her job money to help pay for all the things that we could never afford. Like We were always running into these little situations, these obstacles, where it's like, okay, to get to the next level, you need like 500 bucks to get to the next, you're gonna need 800 bucks, you're gonna need 1,000 bucks to get advanced to the next level, but every time we would play a show, we would get the money, and blow it all on drugs, of course, before the night was over. Uh, this didn't jive with the other band members with their plans of life because they had apartments on their own. They had car payments. They all had girlfriends in the city. They were wrapped up in their own little drug games. All their families were nearby. And then this is kind of like what tipped the pot over. I had a seizure. So, oh, eh, I take it back. I didn't say so. <laughs> I was high. On what was supposedly MDMA. My girlfriend and I were in another city to buy like a thousand pills from this guy, but we wanted to sample some first. So we took a few samples and we went to visit her best friend who was super pregnant. Like the girl's about to drop any minute now. And the girl goes into labor. I don't know if it was all the excitement from the pregnancy or whatever, but I just dropped to the ground and I started seizing. Like, I remember the official driver was there who was going to drive her to the hospital who was like another friend of ours who was like waiting on call and I ran in the house to grab some bags that were already packed and bring them out and that's it. I woke up in the hospital in a bed in the same room next to our friend who had already delivered the baby. The doctors and the police were drilling me and my girlfriend on if we had taken drugs or not and we kept denying it and they were like, come on, your pupils are the size of donuts guys, like you're on something. Eventually, she told them it was ecstasy pills, and I really couldn't remember anything. I couldn't remember my name. I couldn't, I didn't know the date. I didn't know what city I was in. I didn't know who my girlfriend was. And when I had dropped, I landed on the ground so hard, I really screwed my back up. Like, I don't know if I landed on the sidewalk or maybe partially on the stairs coming out of that house with those bags. And so, for the next three days, I had to lay in bed in this new mother's house to recover. And, uh, the guy too, I remember the guy who was going to sell us those ecstasy pills. He flushed the whole bag when he heard that I had a seizure. He was like, fuck this. I'm not dealing with that. Don't want that on my conscience. He got rid of all of it. So he says, anyways, um, when I got back to my own city, I had to do a barrage of further tests at the hospital. And because of my constant appointments, my job fired me. So still being a young dumbass, I didn't really know my workers' rights, and I didn't fight it at all. It's probably good to note that this was when I was working in a call center for Rogers, the cable and internet company. And it's not like a third-party call center. It was directly for Rogers. My supervisor told me in these exact words that they had to let me go because he felt that I was going to need more time for more appointments, and that was going to interfere with their work schedule that they had already planned for me. And like, I had been working there for a long-ass time, and I had moved all the way up to the top of the the chain. Like, I had magic powers at Rogers. I could give people free cell phones. I could give free phone plans for a year without being questioned. I could reverse any charges on your bill, unquestioned. Like, I was a boss up in there. But it didn't matter, though, because I had decided to move with my girlfriend to Nova Scotia and quit the band because those guys didn't want to move there. So I had already quit drugs, I quit drinking. I quit weed. Those guys didn't want to quit. They wanted to keep partying and being bar stars. So that was kind of another issue that kind of split us apart. I still smoked cigarettes, I guess. I know, it's gross, I know, but I smoked for 10 years there before I quit. <clears throat> it wasn't long before living in a small ass town of Antigo Nowhere, Antigonish, Nova Scotia, that my girlfriend started acting out. She got super addicted to drinking and gambling. Like I was watching her. Put a thousand dollars in one gambling machine within a couple hours and then tell me to go empty out my account and bring her the money. And this was the first time I saw for real in front of me a real demon. Like her face changed, her facial features, her voice would change, her whole demeanor, the way she held her stature changed. It was like, it was like Gollum, Gollum, Gollum on Lord of the Rings. And we started fighting and arguing, and we had never really fought before. And our fights got worse and worse. But again, during this time, I didn't work. She did everything. I just stayed at home and made music and, like, cleaned the house, took care of the pets. You know, like, uh, she was the sugar mama. Uh, She got me hooked up with this major music festival, the Evolve Festival. And I ended up getting on stage in front of, on the main stage in front of thousands and thousands of people. And I really felt like my music career was like exploding. I was like, this is it. And I remember I would feel so bad when I looked back at my friends in New Brunswick from the old band and they were still doing these little rap shows at nightclubs for like 50 to 100 people. But eventually uh, our fights, they like got so bad that I moved away. I was like, fuck this, I'm out. I left, I went to Halifax to live with my grandparents. And I got a job, trying to get my life in order, maybe start to pay off my debt. So now it's about 2007, and I have a huge student loan to pay off. I haven't made any payments on it since 2002 when I graduated, when I met this girl, uh, the manager girl along with power bills and all the phone bills from every different company in the Maritimes that had all been piling up over over seven years. Um, I met some really cool musicians in Halifax, and I met my current bestie of life ever, D-Block, down in Halifax. We got a place together. I had a really good job. I was making some really good money. And then tragedy. Once more, I lost my fucking job, man. I'm saying like, I went through jobs the way people go through underwear. Like I was like the kind of guy who would like go in and work somewhere and I'd be fired within a week. I'd be like, oh, I gotta go play a hip hop show. And they're like, no, you gotta work. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna play a hip hop show. Bye, and then they would fire me. And this just this was just the way of life. Um, so I lost my job in Halifax. I couldn't pay my rent. Uh, and at the same time, my ex-girlfriend, the manager who I had just left, had convinced me to run away with her to Ottawa, Ontario, because she had gotten this wonderful job that paid a hefty salary at the Assembly of First Nations, so working directly for the government, and that I would never have to work or want for anything ever again, and if I would just go with her and all the fights would be over because she would be happy with all that money, and that was it. I bailed on my new music friends in Halifax. I bailed on my new bestie. We had made a whole new album. We had only played one real show, but we had received a really good amount of good positive feedback. I bailed on it all, bailed on everything to go and take the easy way out. Three months, three months living in Ottawa, she kicked me out right on the streets, like the literal streets. She called the police to remove me from the apartment. They literally put me out on the street. All my shit is in the apartment. I'm not allowed in to have any of my shit. The cops are like, no, you can figure it out another day. Call a lawyer. I had a friend of a friend of the family on my mother's side who was living in Ottawa. So we connected. He was transitioning from his job into a new department. He got me hooked up with his old job. I lived with him for a month. And then I found a place with some university kids who became some of my best friends to this day. And I worked that job for three to four years with my buddy before finally deciding that Ottawa just wasn't the place for me. Well, that's what I said anyways. The work I was doing was on a contract. They wanted to put me on as a regular employee instead of going month-to-month contracts like I was on. And I didn't like that. I wanted to take a break from life and go live on unemployment insurance again. I got an end of contract on my separation papers, which gives you immediate unemployment insurance. They don't question it. If you don't if you don't have enough hours, if you haven't worked enough, if you don't there's so many stipulations with the Canadian government to prevent you from drawing unemployment insurance that we all pay into. But that end of contract that gets you it immediately. So I headed back east. I lived on unemployment benefits. I stayed with friends sometimes, on their couches, at my parents' places, things like that. Still trying to make music and play shows, rapping by myself. Still trying to be a graphic designer on the side. Still, once in a while, meditating. Then, my grandfather got sick. And since I was the only one in the family not doing anything, living on unemployment benefits, The family asked me to go and take care of him. And they had some money set aside for nurses for this kind of shit. And they paid me quite a bit for it. And I got a free car to drive. I got a free gas card I never had to pay for. You just swipe the card and get all the gas you want. All my food was paid for. No rent to pay. No power bill. They got the internet, high speed internet hooked up for me. All I had to do was take care of my grampy. And I did. It was awesome it was so cool like I learned so much like hanging out with an old fella we had so many good times and we drove all over Nova Scotia together we went on road trips we had so much fun but then he started to get more sick and more sick and the sicker he got the less he wanted to do shit and it was just kind of like him sitting around the house and I would go drive around with my friends and shit and come back and take care of him and eventually he had to go like right into the hospital like full time to palliative care, which is, like, where you go when you're dying. And then he passed away. And then I was like, okay, well, it's all over. Like, I'm going to have to leave now. But my family wanted to sell my grampy's house. And they needed someone to, like, clean it up and organize shit and sell off everything inside the house. And uh, they need someone also to live in that house because apparently your house insurance doubles if nobody's living in there. If it's a vacant house, the insurance goes through the roof. They kept paying me to stay there, and I kept drawing unemployment at the same time. And I got a girlfriend, and I had met this guy who was making these really weird experimental soundscapes, and I had started writing raps to like fit intricately interwoven into his sounds, and we started making an album together. But it wasn't enough. The house was being sold, my unemployment was running out, I broke up with the girlfriend, and I just decided to move back to Ottawa again. I didn't want to stay in the East Coast. Like my feelings were so hurt from the girlfriend. Things weren't really moving fast enough with this new guy with the music. And I moved back to Ottawa with my friends who I was living with before, those university kids. And I got a job. I worked. Um, and this is when I really I got into the Joe Rogan's podcast. A friend was playing it and he was like, man, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. He's like, it's Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. I'm like, I don't know who Joe Rogan is. And he's like, you know, the guy from Fear Factor. And I'm like, I don't even know what Fear Factor is. He's like, he's a, he's a comedian. I'm like, I have no idea. And he would put this on. It was like talk radio. And I'm like, man, this is so fucking lame. Like, why are you listening to talk radio for? Like, this is so fucking boring. Only only old boring people listen to talk radio. But then as I would like start to tune in and listen, I started like actually hearing what they were talking about. I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about UFOs and werewolves and and magic mushrooms and weed and all this shit that I'm into. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. And uh, because of listening to Joe Rogan, I started writing comedy. My friends and the people I worked with were like, man, you're so funny. And like, I don't know if it's because like I was making money now, I was healthy. I started working out. I started eating right. I got in shape. I got a personal trainer helping me. Um, And then this is when I started my very own first podcast, interviewing musicians, entertainers, singers, artists, magicians, like any interesting people who wanted to be on my show. The show was called, because I'm still like this rude, abrasive kind of guy back then, so I called my show the jerk-off hour, like, you know, like wasting time, like screwing around. And things were going really well, had a really good job, making good money, My friendship circle was huge and tight. Life was good. And then I got this big chunk of inheritance money from my grampy. And so, 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 as per usual, I took the easy way out. And I quit my job and I left Ottawa and I moved back to Halifax to live off of my grandfather's insurance money or inheritance money for about another year and I just sort of screwed around job wise. I was still doing shows, still doing my podcast and interviewing musician friends, still doing graphic design on the side for a little extra income here and there, but mostly a lot of partying. Um, I got a few gigs doing stand-up comedy at these raves and being the host. So, like, announcing the next DJ in between and making jokes to keep the show flowing because they needed this little time for one DJ to take down his turntables and the next DJ to come in and hook his up. And so I kind of, like, bridged that gap that way. Uh, I got a spot at Yuck Yucks in Halifax. That really helped my confidence, like, with all the laughter. I must have brought 20 people with me to that one show. I mean... And I recorded it, put it on film on YouTube to use as like a demo to get future gigs. And that really helped a lot. Me and that experimental guy, DJ Dirty Dane, we're doing really good with our weird music. It was very still experimental, kind of dubsteppy, hip-hop-y. I can't even explain it, man. I can't even explain what it was. Uh, you can look up Dirty Intuition on Spotify if you want to go listen to it. And uh, because of me, I was into it and he was Dirty Dane and he came up with the idea to merge the two Dirty Intuition, which I was totally for. Loved it. Uh, Yeah, Spotify, check that out. Uh, And it was good too. The tunes were getting good. Tunes were getting better. We toured around all over the Maritimes. We were getting a good response, playing all kinds of festivals, sometimes both of us, sometimes just me alone. But eventually, I ended up running out of inheritance money, not being able to find a full-time job. And I had to move back in with my mother in New Brunswick. And right away, I got a job at a restaurant, nightclub, pub, combo kind of place. And it's the kind of place, like a really small town, like it's like a 5,000 people in this town. And this is the only one place to go. It's like, it's that bar, that restaurant. And it was scary at first. I never thought I could do a job like that. And like, you know, be a high energy guy all the time, like pow, pow, pow. But I made it work. And I was making the most money I'd ever made in life. Lots of tips and a salary and doing so good at it. I'm still doing stand-up all the time whenever I could. Making out to shows. Still doing my podcast. But like all the things, the bar job ended and I was a broke ass. So I didn't get out to any more shows. I didn't get out to do podcast interviews anymore. I had been dating this girl this lady who was a women's bodybuilding fitness champion don't ask me how i got there and involved a music festival an artist pass with my stage name on it lots of drugs and me just having the biggest balls of anyone to walk up and approach this girl you know with my inflated alter ego running the show back then still and we started dating And eventually, like, I was helping her pay for her rent, pay her car troubles, buying her kids the best Christmas they had in forever. My mom started calling her her daughter. But I got a little too high over the holidays. And I ended up missing one shift at the bar. And they fired me. They fired me over one shift. And that was it. Me and this girl, our relationship just like went out the door. Because like, I had no money left to contribute. Um, I was in debt. I mean, for Christmas, I went negative. I went all the way overdraft. I ran up all my credit cards, everything to have the best Christmas because I was making so much money at the bar. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't matter. I'll make all that back in like three months. Who cares? Well, January 1st, lost my job. So it was so heartbreaking when we split up and like, I must've written like four hate songs about her, like Eminem style, like hate songs. And That was when I fully realized that all this time, I mean, I had written so many songs about so many girls and relationship troubles I had had, that music was being my therapist all these years. And I'd been writing out raps about my life in a sort of therapeutic way. And that's when it hit me that people don't record their therapy sessions and show that shit to everyone. So I never released any more of these songs or any of that last album. That was the point when I decided I'm going to join my best buddy from the rap crew from way back in the day from Element Control, him and his new wife who had been living in Los Angeles, California for a whole year. I sold everything I owned and I moved to LA in October of 2014 and I stayed there for nearly a full year. Now us Canadians are only supposed to stay for a maximum of six months. But at the time, I thought, like, this was it for me. Like, I'm either going to make it big in L.A. or die trying. We got back into our old rap ways, got back into a massive amount of drugs, like, so much cocaine and more meth, tons of weed, Xanax, like, whatever the fuck was going on, like, we were putting it in our systems alcohol poured freely at the bars we'd become these local bar stars again touring all over california for like a whole year and like we made some amazing friends amazing connections like it was so cool like i i wouldn't trade it for anything i would do it all over again now because it was la i wanted to do all these like la sort of things i joined gold's gym i worked out every day I walked and ran on the beach every morning by myself. And after, I would sit and meditate for a half hour to an hour and... I started feeling arthritis pains in my body. And I had done research before, like my dad and my grandfather had arthritis. And I knew that yoga was the only thing to stop your arthritis from getting any worse. And I was starting to feel it. So I started doing yoga every morning. I couldn't really afford to go to yoga classes, but I tried learning online on YouTube. One of my best friends from Ottawa, one of those university kids that I lived with, she told me about yoga with Adrian on YouTube. Now, my friend, her name was Victoria. So remember that name, Victoria. So here I am doing the LA things, rapping, meditating, doing stand up comedy, uh, podcasting, recording other artists in our home studio for money. And then I got scared my passport was expiring in a couple months, and I couldn't get a new one without the government finding out that I had overstayed my six months beyond my allowable staying time. So I had to bounce back to Canada. And I mean, that sucked so bad. Like, when they threw my going away party, like, everyone cried, I cried, like, I couldn't believe, like, the crazy bonds that had been formed down there in crazy old los angeles like it blew my mind but i had to go back i had to come back i didn't want to face like whatever the trouble is of overstaying i didn't want to go to a prison in in california i didn't want to get caught in any kind of jail situation or anything like that i was like fuck that um having never explored the west coast of canada like i'd always been out east as far west as i had ever gone was niagara falls for a day and lived in ottawa ontario that was it and toronto for a day Um, so i wanted to explore the west coast i found friends to stay with in edmonton alberta who also got me hooked up with a job right away that I lasted at, I lasted at that job for a total of three days before going off to find another nightclub job. I lasted at the nightclub job for a week before trying to become a car salesman that my friend hooked me up with, that I lasted at one day before convincing my current bestie, D-Block, who was also in Edmonton at the time, that we should both move to British Columbia, you know, where we would fit in a little better among the fairy folk and the forest woodsy people with the hippies and. We sold off her entire apartment packed a minivan with everything left including a cat and a beagle popcorn and molly we drove from edmonton to calgary we stayed in calgary for a week decided that wasn't for us Uh, There was an opportunity to stay in Calgary and have a place to live and get jobs. But like something just wasn't right. The vibe wasn't right. So we moved on down through British Columbia down to Nelson, which is like almost on the border with the States, uh, Canada and the States in BC. Where I had some friends from Ontario that were living in Nelson. And they let us stay there for a little while. D-Block eventually moved on by herself further down the coast and over to the island to reunite with her boyfriend. But I stayed in Nelson for a whole year. During this time, I had now been doing yoga for over two years. And I thought like, um, I was lying in Shavasana one morning and I thought like, wow, this would be so nice to do every day. Like, I could teach this. This should just be my whole life. And so began the search for a yoga school. And so I ran it by some other friends who had become yoga teachers, and they told me what to look for and what to avoid for certifications and all that shit. Now, this is the great part, this is the cool part of the story. The only girl that I would follow on YouTube was yoga with Adrian. I had watched hundreds and hundreds of videos of other teachers, and none of them resonated with me. They didn't cue the moves properly. They just it didn't work. And Adrian was my girl. Adrian has a slogan. Find what feels good. Find what feels good. Adrian's slogan. I was told about Adrian's videos from my friend named Victoria. Remember when I was living in LA? And now I found a yoga school called Feel Good Yoga. And it was in the city of Victoria. Like, Oh my God, so many like synchronicities. Like it had come full circle and life had meaning again. And I was so pumped. I quit my job. I was working at Walmart. I moved to Victoria. I did this one month intensive yoga teacher training. That's 200 hours packed into one month for anyone who doesn't know what intensive means. Uh, Monday to Saturday, 8 to 5 p.m. And I graduated I then traveled across Canada teaching yoga all the way back to the East Coast where I taught at yoga studios and I taught my own self-promoted self-promoted events at like recreation centers, things like that, for pretty much a full year. And like my yoga classes are fun, man. Like I make lots of silly sound effects. I had fun themes, I I would tell jokes in between the moves, which I found out really isn't a good idea because people are trying to marry the breath with the movement of the body and laughing throws that all off and people would fall over. But uh, shit was good, shit was good for a while and eventually the jobs, the yoga jobs just started to dry up left and right. Studios were getting shut down, I wasn't getting booked anymore for any privates Um, I'm now living in Halifax again and quickly going broke. I'm applying at all the fitness-related places, every gym, applying at all the yoga studios. Nothing's happening. Is anyone starting to see a pattern here? Like, Halifax equals Jay going broke. Some of the trouble was that when I thought I was gonna be a yoga teacher for the rest of my life, I gave away all my clothes to the homeless, all my fancy suits, all my dress pants, all my dress shirts, all my dress shoes, all my ba- all my belts, all my shoes, all my regular pants, my regular, even my skinny jeans, everything, I gave it all away. All I owned were these wacky yoga pants, like psychedelic yoga pants with some shorts, some muscle muscle shirts, like gym clothes, basically. So this was going to make finding a job really difficult. After failing like close to 100 interviews, I just decided one morning, uh, I was doing dishes in the house I was living in with some roommates. And I was like, man, I'm fucking, I'm always cleaning up around here. And it just hit me like, I should start a cleaning company. Like, how hard is it? Like, I do the cleaning here, like, every day I clean. And... So I bought some Facebook ads, I made a website, I called my company Yogi Clean, so I could keep wearing my yoga pants every day, and that was it. I've been super busy ever since. The winter in Halifax, though, in Nova Scotia, it was rough. Like, I had forgotten what maritime winters were like, from being in LA, and then from being out in BC for so long, and kind of avoided it all through Nelson, so definitely two years of no winter and now I'm back in the thick of it. Every day of winter, all I thought about was going back to the West Coast. And finally, the opportunity presented itself. So I hopped on a plane with my yoga mats, a suitcase, and I started doing my cleaning company out here in Victoria, BC, where I'm able to charge a hell of a lot more for the exact same service than I was back East. And that's it. That's it, folks. I mean shit it would literally take me 39 years to tell the whole story in depth but like we'll pick apart at things as they come up during future shows but that's pretty much me in a nutshell um when it comes to some of the things I want to talk about in the show like more seriously like when it comes to addiction to the drugs uh, I just want to mention that I never did drugs to like like hide the pain or to escape from reality like most people do like they want to use drugs for a way to mask something or to fill a hole to fill an empty void and that was never me like i just liked the feeling i liked the exploration aspect i like exploring the mind exploring the internal world the spiritual aspects of it all like this communion with god through like lsd and dmt it's just it's it's what I loved. It wasn't about escaping. It was about tuning in with yourself, with your whole inner being, being at one with the whole universe. And I mean, it's all plant medicines, really. Like, everything comes from a plant at some point. I mean, when you look at it from a scientific point of view, maybe except for a few of the more nasty chemicals like speed, but I was never really truly addicted. Like, I never sold my TV to go buy drugs I never did anything shady for drugs. They were just kind of there or not there. And if they weren't there, I didn't take them. And if they were there, I took them. It was that simple. Like, I have never fiended for drugs like some of my friends did. I've never had that itch, that desire to just, oh, I got to do something. Except for weed, yo. I've been doing a weed fast lately. And I got to say, like, I think about weed every day. At some point in the day, I'm just like, man, a joint would be good right now. But that's a story for another time and another podcast. I'll get more in depth with that. Um, I, read, I read Russell Brand's newest book called Recovery. And after reading that, I feel like I do have a lot of other addictions manifested in other ways. Like like the addiction to podcasting. Like, like what is this weird thing that I'm doing? Like why do I feel the constant need to share my every thought with the world? If it's through this audio platform or the videos on YouTube or on Facebook or Instagram. Like all of this is because I have this strange innate desire. This thing that clicks inside of me that I, I have to share my world with people. The addiction to cannabis which is real for me. The addiction to uh, outcomes, to having my brain dedicated to things happening a certain way or else the whole world just collapses down on me. Uh, There are just so many different little addictions. Social media, my cell phone, internet screens in general like i'm always looking at a screen and i say i hate screens but i'm always having one in my face for some reason and i can't seem to find a way to be free from them and still earn an income like i need to make facebook ads i need to talk to clients online i need to use the apps for the bus schedule and the map to find places to go to i listen to podcasts or music Uh, i still have to do graphic design now and again for the money to survive so like that will be something that I'll talk about a lot on this show with other guests, or maybe just alone by myself again. Okay, one more thing that I want to talk about, or one or two things. The great Hunter S. Thompson. The man has been a hero of mine ever since I saw Johnny Dapp recreate his character in the film Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Now, Johnny Dapp lived with Hunter to get the character down but in the end it was still like this exaggerated version of him uh bill murray also lived with thompson and played him in a film called where the buffalo roam which the movie was weird it didn't really have much of a storyline or a plot or anything it was just kind of these mismatched little segments but bill murray really captured the real character of the real hunter s thompson i've read his books i've watched all the movies and documentaries about him And then this one thing happened where he was about to go on the Johnny Carson show, or maybe it was Letterman, uh, probably Letterman. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. And the host announced him to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. And the audience went nuts with applause, like as they do on talk shows, because the light goes and tells you to clap. But before going on the show, Thompson wanted the world to respect him. And he thought that if he had doctor before his name, that people would take him way more seriously. But he didn't have time to go to school for it. So he went to the Universal Life Church in Modesto, California, who was handing out doctorates left and right to anyone who applied. And so he became known as Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, where even in Fear and Loathing in the movie at least. He sort of demands the respect from people saying, I'm a doctor of journalism for Christ's sakes. And it worked. People gave him all this extra respect. And it helped his career a little bit. And I thought to myself, like, hmm, I wonder if they still exist, uh, the Universal Life Church. And they do. So I applied for a doctorate in metaphysics. Within a few months, I got this package in the mail with some work to do. I mean, it wasn't easy. But i did it all i wrote some letters a little mini thesis i sent it back to them and i was awarded with a nice little certificate in the mail of a doctorate in metaphysics and so was born dr j which i've only ever used for my stand-up comedy stage name i do like conspiracies one of my favorite conspiracies is the flat earth conspiracy it all makes me 99 percent convinced except for this one thing. So when it all started way back in the day, It was inherently flawed right from the beginning due to some faulty math that everyone seems to just overlook, and they just run with all the other shit. So there's a formula to figure out the curvature of the Earth, or just curvature in general. I don't know the formula exactly, but let's just say it's 2,000 feet. So you need a channel of water 2,000 feet in a straight line. And if you put a little toy sailboat on the water and watch it drift away by a certain amount of feet... You should be able to see the boat getting lower and lower like the sail and the boat will get lower as it traverses the curve and the boat will get lower and lower the mass and the sails will get lower until there's nothing left so this was done back in like the 1800s or some shit And they didn't use the right amount of distance. So let's just say they only used a thousand foot long channel of water instead of the 2,000 that is needed to see the curve happen. So they put the little sailboat, they pushed it off, and it went down the river and it never got lower. It only got smaller as it went further away. And that was it. And they were like convinced the earth was flat because of that one reason alone. Like, look, the boat got smaller. And then they never double checked their math or anything. And Later in life, people read about this experiment Like they didn't just all of a sudden start saying the earth was flat back in the day and everybody freaked out. Like people were like, no, dude, your fucking math is wrong. But later now in life, people have read about this old ass experiment and they're taking it for its word. Like they're not reading the part that says like, yo, the math was wrong. And so they're kind of running with it from there and they've added to it and it's really, it's. All the adding to it that is the really convincing stuff like the map of the United Nations looks like the the round flat Earth with the ice wall around it and Antarctica right in the center. Or how come planes don't fly a certain way when it would be much quicker if the Earth was round, they could just go from here to there. But they can't because it's flat. So they all go all the way across the other way. Things like that. But when you look at the math of that original formula, it doesn't add up. When you use the real formula, there is a curvature so the entire structure was built upon faulty foundation and that shit is sinking deep into this spherical earth that we live on what is even more interesting to me is this when i was in college i was looking for something in the library and i found this little book stashed in behind the other books it wasn't even a library book it was just hidden there And it was written by some guy. I forget his name now. I think he was a captain of something. And self-published. It was like 70 years ago. So someone paid to have this printed from their own money. It's not like a book deal or anything like that. It's not like a book company trying to make money off of some fiction. And I thought that was just as strange, you know, as the title of the book with the map included for a hollow earth. This guy claims to have traveled deep down inside the hollow earth by accidentally discovering an entryway inside. And inside, there's this giant sun that just floats in the center of the planet. And the people and the animals down there walk around the inside crust of our planet with a little bit of atmosphere. Think about the Earth being like like a shell with a big glowing sun in the center. And then there's, yeah, like atmosphere and lakes and waters and rivers and trees and all kinds of shit growing inside there and mountains. And... There were these, he writes about in this book, there were these mystical, mythical beasts. Unicorns, centaurs, fairies, elves, like all the things that we hear about in fantasy books and movies. And the guy eventually, I think accidentally ended up leaving the Hollow Earth. And when he got back, nobody believed him. And he wrote this book to spread the knowledge of it. And then he left again to go back, and then was never heard from again. So no one knows if he like died because he had to fly in through like it goes in through uh, somewhere up north. I think it was Antarctica is where the hole was that he went down in and like no one had ever heard of him again. And people just assumed that he died there up in the up in the land of snow. I think it's cool that the idea that fantasy creatures are down there, it kind of leads me to like my next interest and this might tie it together channeling. Were authors like Tolkien being visited in dreams or by channeling visited by these very creatures who roam freely deep down inside the earth? Was there maybe a collective consciousness down there radiating their existence outward and some authors, some creative people can somehow like catch that stream of consciousness and then write about it or draw it or whatever? And this brings us like the famous quote that's probably being misread if there is a hollow earth as above, so below. And so we know for sure that channelers today are being contacted from the external, according to the channels, outward, from space, from these non-physical beings or aliens, and are bringing back messages from them to share with us regular earth folk. Or could all of this be caused maybe by faulty pineal gland activations? Perhaps these authors, um, perhaps their brains are just shooting people full of DMT and And the channels too, maybe it's just little DMT squirts that are happening and they're having these like mild visions and contacts with the machine elves that are in the DMT realm. I was doing a breathing exercise one time and I fully blasted my consciousness into another dimension. No drugs involved, just breathing. And it's like totally, completely able to send you on a hallucinogenic trip As you lay comfortably in your bed. So anything is possible, really. I mean, I did that from breathing. Imagine other people have breathed weird before, and maybe it kind of got them a little shot of DMT. I also just did this breathing exercise the other day that oxygenates the body so that you don't need to breathe for a while. And I don't mean like holding my breath, no. At the end of the the breathing exercise, you let out all your breath fully, and I didn't need to breathe for over two minutes, and maybe I could have gone longer. So really, anything is possible. I have also tried DMT myself. I've done the vegan diet. I've done the keto diet. I know the gym life. Anything about tweaking the mind or the body for a fully optimized human experience And you can all look forward to more of this kind of shit in future episodes. So wrapping this up, folks, as we get to the end here of this first episode, I'm losing my voice. I probably won't be able to talk for another three days. I hope this helps to clarify who I am, the things I am into, what makes me feel that I'm qualified to talk about this kind of stuff. Like, um, I will never talk about something that I haven't done myself. I won't give advice if it's not something that I wouldn't do myself. There's a ton of topics already touched down upon on my YouTube channel, Beyond the Mat, that will be revisited again, but in length and with guests on this audio-only podcast. And I just want to let you guys know that I love you. We've all been through quite a bit during this life. We really need to stick together, folks, and love everyone, serve everyone, just be, just be love. And also, be present and mindful all the time, as much as you can. That's it for the show. Ladies and gentlemen, peace, love, and light. Namaste. And all that other good noise. And we out. Ding. Yeah, some things, some things never change.